Welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 10, Reality Testing, Love and Loss. Okay, today's lecture is actually um, quite crucial uh, in a important ways which I hope I will convey quite succinctly to you. But just to sort of steal my own thunder, one of the major themes that you might not pick up on today is what is a healthy kind of relatedness to others? What is a healthy kind of relatedness to others? And does that vary across cultures? So what's healthy? And does it vary across cultures? And what has psychoanalysis got to say about that? Okay, so a few words about loss. I need to sort of explore with you the nature of loss because we tend to think of it as death and only death, but actually there are many forms of loss in life. Um, an obvious one is the loss of a loved person when you break up with them. And I don't know about you, but I can still remember breaking up with um, my first sort of boyfriend as a young person, and it was just complete agony the morning after we had split up. Because, you know, you wake up and you think, yeah, great, oh, no. You know, there's that kind of realisation, oh. And as much as love gives you this amazing surplus in life, breakups are an amazing drain in life. Like, they just take the life out of you so much. They're so difficult to, to deal with and to endure. One of the things I think that's particularly difficult about breakups is the person's still there. You know, it's not like a death where you actually can't find the person in the world any longer. There they are, still in cafes, hanging out, chatting to your friends. <laughs> you know that feeling? What are they doing talking to my friends? And, um, you, you know, and there's always that slight tendency that, oh, maybe we could get back together again, do you know? And so the, the loss is sometimes not an absolute loss. The person still exists. But what you've lost is a particular kind of access to that person. You know, you can't kiss and cuddle them anymore, or you can't tease them, or, you know, that kind of thing. There's, there's things that you can no longer do relationally with that person that you used to be able to do. One of the very difficult things about breakups, too, is that when actually the, the love between people has gone... And that, that kind of intensity is gone. There can be a tendency for people to think that the sort of end games, like, you know, the last dying flames of relationship, um, are not powerful anymore. But one of the things that I've noticed clinically is that those end games might not be able to give you much pleasure anymore. But my word, they can still hurt you. And I think people underestimate the power of the kind of lingering effects of a relationship and they think it might be okay just to go back to bed with them a couple of times not realizing that you know you're actually courting a certain form of disaster in doing that but it's almost impossible not to sometimes there is that kind of what Freud would call a reconfexis of the object you try to reinvest in them as love object again only to be reminded as to why you split up, you know, that things actually are not able to be brought back together again or patched up in some sort of way. So breakups, I think, are particularly difficult because they require you to segue, to transition, in other words, from one kind of relationship to another kind of relationship. 
Now, what I find fascinating about breakups is they're a very painful variant of what we have to do all our lives with people. Namely, if you've got a friend that you've known, like say I'm very old now, and I've still got friends that I've had, very close friends that I've had since I was 17. Now, obviously, we've changed massively, both of us. And so along the way, we've had to hit the reload button, you know, delete the cache, reload. This is a fresh take on this person. Have we still got something in common? Have we still got something that we can share? Now, I don't know about you, but really good friendships, you tend to be able to do that. You don't even notice that you are doing it. You just move alongside the person. Families? Families? <laughs> I don't know about you, but they're not as good at hitting the reload button. They've got a conception of you um, that can sometimes be quite frozen in time. My family still gets really surprised that I can drive. <laughs> okay, They're positively shocked that I can cook. Okay, It's like, oh my God, when did she learn to do that? Do you know? And so, in other words, they can be quite slow to realize that you've changed, that you've acquired new skills, or that you don't wear everything red anymore. Do you know? Yeah? In other words, they really have sort of cherished visions of you, but those cherished visions can be quite an impediment to you being able to become an adult in your family. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of having been away and having to move back into the family home in a short period of time. And it's just not possible. For some people it really is, but for some people it's really not. Because, you know, your mother's watching how much you're on the phone and if you're using the washing machine correctly, etc., etc. And there's this kind of intensive experience. One of my friends is back in Australia at the moment waiting for a visa. She's back in the family home and she's going quietly insane. And she's actually got a really fantastic relationship with her parents, but there is that sense that they haven't updated the, the cash, if you like, on who she is as a person, and she doesn't find it possible to be her adult self in the context of the family. But the most extreme variant of loss is, of course, death. And that's why I think you know Freud chooses that as the centerpiece for his rather beautiful paper, Morning in Melancholia. I know I sound morbid saying it's a beautiful paper, but it is one of my favorite papers of Freud's because I, I think it has a kind of a haunting sort of a beauty to it. It's also very important theoretically, which is why I'm focusing on it today. In that paper, he says that sometimes we also have to mourn when we lose an abstraction, like it might just be a value or a moral ideal. Um, one of my doctoral students is doing research on people who have experienced retrenchment. And one of the things that, that some of those people have to mourn is a vision of work that they didn't know they had. In other words, they thought that if they worked really hard and gave their best when they retired, they would be given a, a gold watch, they would be recognised personally by the firm, and their service above and above, uh, beyond the call of duty would be celebrated. In fact, what happens sometimes is when there's an economic downturn or they're hitting a certain age or their skills aren't updating, they're retrenched and they're left realising, my God, that was purely an economic transaction. There's nothing about loyalty there. I worked as if it were about loyalty. But in the end, I wasn't acknowledged as if it were about loyalty. So sometimes people lose that abstraction of, of work as a kind of a, an exchange around loyalty and recognition. And sometimes it, it's absolutely not. It's just the economics.
Another kind of loss can be, you know, if you get really disillusioned because you thought the government was protective of you and didn't lie and didn't hack your phones and all that sort of stuff, and then you realise, no, actually they do. Um, and also a belief in heroes, like sometimes um, when sporting heroes end up, you know, sending CD texts to an array of people or being merely human and having affairs, you know, vroom, our ideals can really come crashing to the ground. So loss can be of that sort as well. So Freud's view of mourning is basically, it isn't pathological. Don't interfere with it. Like, don't send someone to analysis. Uh, don't send them to therapy. Don't try to speed it up. Don't think it's abnormal if people are having strong anniversary reactions a year later um, because it's a slow process. It's a process and it's an incredibly painful process because what it entails is reality testing. What, what has to be established is that the loved person no longer exists. They're no longer out there in the world. Uh, I don't know if you've seen a, a movie called Contact by Jodie Foster. Has anyone seen it? It's a bit of a B-grade movie. I like B-grade movies. Sometimes even C-grade movies, I'm afraid. And, uh, well, her father dies in that right at the beginning, so this is not spoiling the plot. Um, and uh, because they were radio buffs, she gets onto every radio wave she possibly can and, and tries to see if anything of him is still out there at any level. It's a very beautiful moment, and that's reality testing. Is he anywhere? Is he contactable? And so you have to establish piece by piece that, yes, the person no longer exists. Like if you save jokes for them because they had a particularly quirky sense of humor, you realize you're never going to be able to tell those jokes. Um, and, but what you see is that people don't just let, it, let the memory of the other do a slow fade. There's actually a hyper, what's called a hypercathexis, a reinvestment of meaning, a reinvestment of energy. Like it might be that you look through all the old photos, you go to all the places that they loved, you listen to the music that they love, or even that, um, I think in American Beauty, when at the very end, there's a loss, I won't say what, because that would spoil the plot, and the woman goes into the cupboard and just embraces all the old clothes and breathes in the smell of the lost lover. Okay, so the hypercathexis. Because you, there's that kind of, yes, this is who they were, hypercathexis, and they're not there. And you have to detach the libido, pack up the clothes, get rid of them if you possibly can, etc. What Freud says, and that's why I find it a beautiful paper, he says, why it's so extraordinarily painful a process we don't know, but it is extraordinarily painful. And I think in part what's happening in mourning is that you're not quite sure of what you've lost. You know, it's like if you're in a department and there's someone who has just done all sorts of little jobs, you don't realise how incredibly useful they are to the department until they're gone. And you realize, oh my God, that was the person that kept the morale so high, that washed the dish towels as well, that organized things, etc. In other words, part of what you're discovering, I think, in the process of mourning is, you know, who was my father to me? Like, what, what function did he serve in my life? What did he represent to me? So there's a process of discovery as well. It's not just like, oh, I know exactly who my father was to me. It's a process of realizing everything that someone did or was for you. Um, but theoretically, at least, once you've established that process, agonizing as it is, you, your ego is 
supposedly free and uninhibited again. And um, I suppose the, the best example I can think of is the sorts of people who, um, like my Auntie Betty had a dog, Bess, that she loved so much that when Bess died, Auntie Betty never got another dog, like not any kind of dog. It wasn't that she just never got that kind of dog again. She got no other dog. She couldn't move on past Bess, you know, whereas some people might go, okay, well, I won't get another Springer Spaniel, but... You know, I'll, I'll get a border collie this time or something. Okay, so people are very, very different. And that's what's so fascinating is that mourning is very revealing. And that's a major theme of today, that mourning is very revealing of who we are and how we love. And how we love the particular person that we've lost. Now, one of the most difficult things with mourning is that it can really unravel a person's personality. If the person who's lost the other really can't come to grips with the fact that the other is gone, then it can actually push them into either a temporary, almost psychotic state. And Freud talks about that. He says some cling to the object with an hallucinatory, <coughs> wishful psychosis. They can't accept the reality. They're gone. So they move into a sort of wish world where they still live, where they still exist, and they are still to be found. So in that paper, Freud distinguishes mourning and melancholia. And so now I just want to characterize for you what he says about melancholia. It's different from mourning. Melancholia is kind of his word for depression, if you like. Okay, depression. So he characterizes it as a, a, a profound, painful dejection. So the person is, is absolutely uninterested in food, sleep, fun, friends, activities, outings. They've lost their interest in the world. So there's a kind of withdrawal of libido from the external world and all their former pastimes and habits and pleasures. And there's just a withdrawal of interest. There's this a loss of capacity to love. So often someone who's mourning won't be such an amazing friend anymore because they've got a lot of work to do within themselves. And so they might not quite take care of your feelings. They might be quite angry and quite aggressive to you at times um, because you're not the love, you know, the love object that they've lost. But in the depression, there can also be what he calls a lowering of self-regard. Okay, so, so in mourning, it's the world that's depleted. In melancholia, it's oneself that's depleted. And so there's this diminishment of self-regard. You don't like yourself anymore. You revile yourself. And you have what he calls delusional expectations of punishment. Like you feel that you're wrong and that you're bad. You've done something terribly wrong. And he also talks about people believing that they're going to end up being really impoverished. They're going to really, you know, be broke. Now he says all by one of these characteristics, all, all of these characteristics of depression are also true of mourning except one. And what's the characteristic that's absent in mourning? Do you remember from your seminars at all without looking at the handout? Exactly. Self-reproach. Yeah. In mourning, the world is diminished and depleted, but you, you feel okay about yourself. But when you get depressed, or if your mourning turns into melancholia, 
then you'll start to be really tough on yourself. And that's the hallmark that something different is going on here. And often that's referred to as complex grief. Okay, so it's, it's quite useful clinically, to be honest. So in depression or melancholia, you've got this loss of self-respect. But what Freud says is weird about it is that normally if you, if you really thought you were worthless and only worthy of shame, you would withdraw and hide. But he says, far from that, this person who thinks they're so shameful is proclaiming it from the rooftops about what a vile, lowly, egocentric, self-interested, shallow friend they are, etc. You know, and and he's very rude at that moment. He says, Yes, finally they've seen the truth of human nature. It's it's funny that they had to fall so ill before they realized this is what we're all like. So he doesn't think very much of humanity, does he, Freud? Um, but he says there's something unusual about this because this proclaiming of the loss of self-respect is something that should make us, you know, pay attention. And he says what that loss of self-respect shows is a moral dissatisfaction with the ego. So we're judging ourselves, in short. We're judging ourselves. And we're not doing terribly well. We're not surviving that judgment. Now, what I really need to underscore for you here is that at this point in his writing, 1917, Freud doesn't yet have the notion of the superego. He doesn't really get that until about 1921. So what he's moving towards in his thinking is the realization that the ego, there's not just the ego and the it. He talks about this change in the grade of the ego, and that's a direct quote, a change in the grade of the ego. In other words, he's starting to recognize that within the ego, there's this kind of little pocket of judgment that sits high above the ego, and the uber-ego, literally the super-ego, and is critical and, you know, of the ego. And so that's actually quite an, it's why the paper is such an important paper. So what's interesting is that the loss is experienced in regard to the ego. What you've actually lost is your love object, but you don't feel that it's a loss of an object. You feel depleted. You feel diminished in some way. And he says, you only have to listen to the criticisms and you realize that the reason the person's proclaiming publicly these criticisms is because the criticisms don't really pertain to that person. They're actually covertly about the person that they've lost. So they're actually criticizing the dead person. And it could just be for leaving them, you know, for leaving them alone, for abandoning them, leaving them to live their life without them. So I suppose the question I want to raise, which Freud's already raised, but why does this affect some people in this way? Like, why do some people slip into melancholia after they've lost someone? And why do we mourn some relationships in this way? Like, you know, you might be able to get over one relationship, no problem, but then the next one is more of an obstacle for you. Well, you know, why is that? You know, why is this? Why is this variability the case, both across persons and across relationships for the same person? Well, Freud says the key thing is ambivalence. And if you have a look at that paper, Morning and Melancholia, and just highlight any bits where he talks about ambivalence, you'll see it's a pivotal notion for him. 
because he says you're most at risk of depression following loss if you've both loved and hated the other person. So in other words, we have more complex grief processes where it's been an incredible love-hate relationship. He says, in that instance, you can't quite give up the love, and so you forget that you've actually lost the object, you, you pretend in a sense, at, a, at the level of consciousness, that you haven't lost the object, you, you withdraw that love back onto your own ego, and unfortunately, because you're kind of like setting up a mini version of that person you've lost within your own psychic economy, the hate that you formerly felt towards that person now gets directed towards your own ego. And that's when you start to attack, judge, feel so lacking, so wanting, so diminished in self-regard. Because it's kind of like the love-hate relationship you used to have towards them, you now experience towards parts of yourself. So it's almost like you're mistaking part of your ego for the lost love object. Have I lost you entirely? I know this is really, really tricky stuff. I'm, what I'm trying to do is summarize the paper that we've already read in Toots in Morning in Melancholia so that you've been, in a way, made to notice the bits that I want to emphasize today. All of the things I've said are in that paper, but I don't know about you, it's very easy to read that paper and not get these bits. Okay, but these are the bits that I'm seeing as important for today's lectures. There's much more in that paper, I know. But this is the, the crucial bit for, for me today. Because one of the most remarkable things, I think, one of the most difficult philosophical problems is how can the ego get enough strength in some instances, to kill itself. Like, how, how can suicide be possible? If we're wired to survive, if we're wired to displace anything that's not sweet to our ears onto other people or into unconscious processes, how on earth can we ever judge ourselves so harshly that we would end our own lives? Now, what Freud says is that we mistake ourselves. When we kill ourselves, we mistake what we're actually killing, right? We, we don't necessarily... Um, believe that we're killing ourselves, we're killing something that we have identified with or become in some way. So in interesting ways that we can't quite go into here, both in love where the other person becomes so adored and so idealized that we feel like mere worms beside them, that sort of overvaluation of the love object when you first fall in love, that's when you're overwhelmed by the object and your own ego feels like nothing in comparison. And the same with suicide, that your ego has, in a sense, been overwhelmed by an object. Differently, though, obviously. Okay. So now that I've done a bit of a recap on Morning and Melancholia, because I know it was before the break that you did that, it was before your essay, have I even read that paper? What was it about again, if you're like me? It's like, no. Okay, so I just did a little bit of a recap there. Now I want to take you forward. And uh, I can't say today's lecture is an easy lecture. It's not. But I will try to emphasize what I see as the quite simple bits. Okay. Okay, so I've got five main things that I want to achieve. 
What I've already tried to introduce you to, and I'll recap now, is the way that Freud used mourning as a diagnostic tool. In other words, if someone comes to you, you're working as a clinician, they've got all sorts of conflict because they've just lost their love object, you can find how they loved through speaking with them and listening to them at that moment. And that was very much how Freud used mourning. I then want to also contextualize his writing on mourning because his writing on mourning has big theoretical importance. And you may be interested in that, you may not be. I am, you don't have to be. But the next bit that I want to do is kind of slightly my own theorizing. In the research literature in the 90s, I think 1996, someone called Vicky Helgeson started to write about communion and agency. And she was calling upon the works of a writer called Bakan from 1964. And the reason I was fascinated by Vicky Helgeson's work was I had been working with Aboriginal people in the medical service in Redfern, and we had been looking at depression and suicidality in Aboriginal women in the inner city. And I started to realize that the kind of sense of self that we think of as healthy in psychology is a very agentic sense of self, a very independent, autonomous, self-determining kind of view of self. And I realize it's not entirely culturally appropriate either for women or for Aboriginal people, and particularly not, it seemed to me, for Aboriginal women. And I started to realize that Aboriginal people in the inner city seemed to have a more extended sense of self, and I felt that this had implications for how they tried to sustain their own well-being and mental health. And so I wanted to sort of theorize an extended sense of self in a way that didn't make it sound like narcissism. Okay, that's why this is a tough lecture, because these are big topics, okay? But I'm going to have a go, okay? So, you know, button down. It's going to be a bit of a rough ride for you, but I'm going to see if I can possibly lead you to see why I think this is, is a fascinating area of research. And there's all sorts of very practical stuff you could do on this if you're interested for honours theses, because there are strong gender lines around depression there are strong gender lines around what makes a person depressed, what sorts of losses make a person depressed, depending on whether they're masculine or feminine, rather than male or female. Okay. All right. So I want to sort of look at the notion of an extended sense of self and look at the importance that others have, both in the formation of feeling and in other ways. I want to look at the implications of having an extended sense of self for your well-being, for the tendency towards self-harm, which is quite prevalent in Aboriginal communities and also in ours, and also for uh, the implications of this for how we think about mourning, theoretically. And then finally, I just want to give you a few little tips that were really hard won on my part about how you can use this to work cross-culturally, because I made so many mistakes when I first started working with Aboriginal people. I don't know how many times I put my foot in my mouth. I just seemed to blunder in, you know. Fortunately, I was sufficiently well-meaning and goofy that the people tolerated me and taught me heaps. So I'd love to just convey that to you because I don't think we know as much as perhaps we should about cultural differences in, in Australia. Okay. Okay, so Freud's diagnostic use of mourning. 
this should be old hat to you from what I've just said. So it's a bit of a recap. Okay, so what Freud says is how we mourn the, love, the loss of a love object is an indicator of what kind of relationship we had. And one of the most pivotal things is, are we able to accept the reality that the, lo the lost love object is gone? That's a major one. The second thing is, do we fall into depression of a really prolonged sort rather than merely mourn them? I put merely in brackets because it's not merely. Mourning is agony. So I don't mean to diminish the significance of that, believe me. But it's but mourning is different from depression for reasons that I hope you know. And what does this show about how we loved a person if we do slip into depression rather than merely mourn them? Well, Freud would say that depression is a sign, and you can pick that depression is occurring, not just mourning, if there is that self-berating. Okay, if, if you're seeing yourself as worthless, that's a sign that perhaps there was some ambivalence in the relationship that the person's not comfortable with. It's actually quite agonizing. Um, if you've kind of... Imagine, say, for instance, the last words you ever said to someone before they died were words of anger. 25% of your relationship was angry, 75% was loving. But you were unlucky, and the last thing you said was an angry word. Okay, That's really tough. It's quite tough to forgive yourself for that. You couldn't possibly have known, and yet... Okay, so so some people find it very difficult to, to, to believe that you can both love and hate the same person. We like to assume that we just love and that love is the sum totality, but actually it's not the case. You think about it, if someone's really unique to you and there's no one else like them, okay, they have got enormous power over you. Because if they were to go, you couldn't say, oh, well, I'll just find someone else because there's no one else like them. They're absolutely unique to you. So when we love someone uniquely, we hate them a bit too, because they wound our narcissism. And we've all got a bit of narcissism. And it's a wound to our narcissism to really need someone else so much that they can cause us pain and agony merely by leaving us. Okay, so, and don't underestimate the power of that wound to narcissism, because people can do quite extreme things to try and ensure that the other never leaves them or that no one else ever has that person. Okay, so it can be a sign of ambivalence. Ambivalence is normal, right? But if it's, absolute, if it's really extreme and you have difficulty acknowledging it, it can be the marker of some pathology in the relationship. In other words, a slightly narcissistic relationship is the extreme. Okay, so the first thing that we have to accept is reality testing. If we don't want to end up being psychotic, we've got to acknowledge external reality. And if a person's died, part of external reality is the recognition that the object is gone. And so the ideal form of mourning is that you go through this painful phase of reality testing where you revive and reconfect memories. But in that process, you really drive it home to yourself piecemeal, clothes, radio waves, everything that could have contacted them, you've tried everything, they're not there. So you discover that the loved, the loved object is no longer there and you, you go through that extraordinarily painful process. What, what you then do in the ideal situation, according to Freud, 
is you identify with the lost other. And if you remember, I spoke about gun trip, and he said, oh, I really hate Freud's notion of the unconscious, and I think the id's a load of... But um, one thing that Freud said that will have lasting clinical relevance is that every lost relationship is the basis of identification, and that that changes who we are forever, because we identify, we are modified, we are shaped by those that we've loved. So gun trip thinks that's absolutely the best thing Freud ever said. And this is where Freud said it in 1917 in Morning and Melancholia. He says, we accept that the object no longer exists and we set up within our own ego attributes of the lost love object. Attributes of the lost love object. In other words, it's the shadow of the object that falls upon the ego. That's his phrase, a beautiful phrase. It's not the full object, okay? Your ego is not overwhelmed by the object, but just attributes that you take on board and recognize them as belonging to that person that you've lost. Now, that's one position, identification. Another position is introjection. It's where, rather than dismantling that other and taking on board attributes of them, you try to sort of take on board the entire other within your own psychology, within your own psyche in some ways. And what's fascinating to me is that many very contemporary accounts like Derrida and Kirkby, 2006, go for this model of mourning, and they're really anti-Freud's model. They really think that Freud is, has got it all wrong, that what Freud suggests is an untrue kind of mourning. And that's what I'm raising for you today. So some accounts like Derrida and Kirkby, which I'll talk about in a minute, suggests that you can actually retain the object. You don't have to let it go. That the other still exists and is interjected within us as a totality. So it's not merely attributes of the other or the shadow of the object, but you actually retain a relationship to the other. Now, what interests me is um, I, the very first time I went to um, Outback Australia and I uh, went to an Aboriginal community called Arulcha with one of my friends who had been working there for seven years. And I wasn't allowed to be named because a woman called Doris had actually just died. And in Aboriginal communities, if someone of a particular name has died, you don't use that name for a year. Okay, so I had to have another name. And it was fascinating because I never met anyone else called Doris anyway. And it was so amazing. I, I wasn't able to use my own name because there was some sense that they had that you might call the spirit of that person back if you call their name. And so you don't use their name to let them fully go in some way. So that's the sort of cultural approach that, that they have. So there's some sense of the continued existence of the other, but you have to let them go. Okay, so here's the, here's the nutshell of the, today's lecture. And I'll come back to it again and again, but this is it in a nutshell. Does how we relate to lost others echo how we relate to present others? So is the way that we mourn reflecting the way that we love? Okay? Now, if there are people for whom their sense of self quite literally includes others. In quite a literal way, their sense of self includes other people. Is it possible for them to have what, we, what I'm calling an extended sense of self, 
that differs from narcissism? And is it the case that those who've got this extended sense of self, that they might mourn differently from people who don't have an extended sense of self? In other words, wanting to retain a bond to another might not be a sign of failed mourning or depression or an ambivalent relationship or a narcissistic relationship, it might be a sign that you've actually got an extended sense of self, that you're more communal, if you like, in your sense of self. So that's, that's the question. Now I'm going to unpack all of those things for you, so don't, don't panic, because to, to really get the difference between an extended sense of self and narcissism is a, is a big ask, and that's what I'm going to try and do. Okay, so bonds in life, bonds in death. The bonds to the living other can be blurred without it being a sign of narcissism. Okay, let me just pan back for a moment and, and talk to you for a moment about narcissism. If you have a narcissistic bond to another, you treat them as though all of their abilities and skills and aspirations are part of you. Okay? And if they don't use their abilities and skills and aspirations in the way that you would, they've let you down. And you feel full of rage and anger, almost as if part of your own body wasn't working for you, like your arm wouldn't pick things up any longer. Now, it's quite common for a child to have quite a narcissistic attachment to their parents. In fact, it's kind of normal. It's quite common, for instance, for a little baby that's walking to feel quite joyous that they're walking when actually, you know, the majority of the work is being done by the parent that's walking around with two fingers, stopping them from, you know, collapsing and falling over. But the baby doesn't see it that way. They see it as totally their own success. And the parent doesn't go, you know, it's really me holding you up, kid. The parent goes, yeah, look at you. This is great. Well, optimally, that's what the parent does, all right? But, <laughs> yeah. but if the parent invests in the child in a narcissistic way, you know, they're sort of living off the glories and achievements of their child, that's not quite as healthy because the parent's supposed to have, you know, got their own boundaries intact and to allow the child to depend on them but not necessarily to depend heavily back on the child. So narcissism's supposed to really be one way in life. I suppose once you get old and doddery, you hope your kids look after you a bit, but, you know, it, there's no guarantees, and nor should there be, okay? So in other words, narcissism is where the self-other boundary is really, really blurred in a motivated sort of way, such that the independent of the existence of the other is denied. And if that person tries to assert that they're individuals and that they're autonomous and separate, there will be all hell to pay. There'll be rage, okay? And the person may be rejected from the family or, or uh, disinherited or whatever. Okay, so narcissistic bonds are not are blurred bonds where there's not really a strong distinction between self and other, 
but they're not healthy bonds, particularly if it's from parent to child, the narcissism. Okay. But there is a sort of um, a, an extended sense of self where you can feel that you're really defined by who you relate to, that you get a lot back from them, that you kind of do a lot of reality testing through your friends, you soothe your emotions by telling them your troubles and your woes. In other words, you might actually really need your friends and they might be part of what makes you able to survive. But it's it, if it's two-way, it's not quite so narcissistic. Okay? So in other words, an extended sense of self, you may then mourn those others in a different way because if that person was your major confidant, if they were the person that helped you to really write well or to soothe troubled feelings and you lose them, you may actually really feel diminished because you've lost the person who used to perform those functions with you and for you. So a strong connection to lost others, if it's non-narcissistic, doesn't necessarily mean that depression will ensue when you lose them. Okay. That's that's what I'm trying to suggest. Okay. So with the I'm setting up the two accounts clearly and then I'm moving on. So with the identification account, that's where the shadow of the object falls upon the ego. In other words, your ego is shaped by the kind of residue or the precipitate of those that you've identified with. And for healthy mourning, you can identify with the object but you don't retain a relationship to the object. In, in other words, you don't continue to believe that the object still exists somewhere. Now, contextualizing Freud's writing, and this is a really good bit to finish on before I let you go and have a coffee, because your brain will go on the fritz with this. It's, it's quite tough stuff. And I just have to confide something quite humorous to you. The very first article of Freud's that I ever read was his paper on narcissism, which I think is the hardest paper he's ever written. I thought, oh, God, <laughs> I'm never going to understand this man. He is just too hard. So I was delighted to discover that it's legendarily difficult. Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to go into enormous detail, but you need to realize the significance of that paper. So Morning of Melancholia 1917 is written just after his paper on narcissism, which was written in 1914. Has anybody seen um, The Dangerous Profession yet? With Yeah? Good on you. Well, Freud's paper on narcissism was written just after his break with Jung. I need to sort of tell you that because he thought Jung was a narcissist and his paper is, in a sense, both an attack personally on Jung and it's Freud distancing himself from Jung's theories in a very powerful way because they've had a big bust-up, like a lover's quarrel almost, and it's of course, you know, shows in the theory, as it always does. So what happens in the paper on narcissism is that Freud changed his whole theory of what the ego was. He, it totally changed his theory. Prior to the paper on narcissism, up until about 1910, he thought that the ego was a subset of the instincts. That's what it was. It was hunger, pain avoidance, temperature control, bit of motility and motor skill, etc. But he thought it had its own instinctual basis. After he's, he wrote that paper on narcissism, he says, no, I don't actually think there are ego instincts anymore. I'm going to put all the ego instincts 
on the same side as the libidinal instincts. And I'm just going to see the ego as a structure now. It hasn't got any energy. It's got no drives. It's just a structure. It's just like the residue or the precipitate of all the people that we've loved and lost. And that's what our ego is. So it's a pretty impoverished ego in a way. It's not going to be great at repressing because it's got no cloud. It's got no drives at its disposal. What also happened, unfortunately, was because we had the ego instincts before, you could love people because they fed you. You could love people because they made you feel nice and warm. You could love people because they were good to touch, you know. Um, but as soon as he sort of, you know, put them all on the same side as sex, so you've just got the life instincts after that, you haven't really got a, a non-libidinal basis for connection to others anymore. So his theory is immensely poorer for this move, which is why I don't follow him particularly in this move. Because <clears throat> um, I thought the ego instincts were really theoretically useful. I think it's a bad move, Freud, basically. Um, <clears throat> and I've got a really beautiful book by Elizabeth Young Levy Brule, which is called Where Do We Fall When We Fall in Love, if you want to check it out. She's got a gorgeous chapter called The Hidden History of the Ego Instincts. I was so delighted to find that. Um, and she says what's important about them is that they're a separate source of connection to others, non-libidinal. And of course, that's why attachment theory is so important theoretically. So Freud had shifted away from this theory, which was a bit of a shame. And I think that retaining the ego instincts were quite theoretically useful because they give us a sort of what's called a metapsychology. In other words, a metapsychology is what assumptions does your theory make? What assumptions does your theory make? Okay, so in my metapsychology, I assume that we have drives. That's one assumption that my theory makes. Another assumption that my theory makes is that we have affects. Okay? And one assumption that my theory makes is that there are different kinds of drives, some of which are libidin and some of which are not. Okay, so that's my metapsychology. And it's important that you have what I call an honest metapsychology. Like you don't write as if you don't, take drives seriously, and then assume that sexuality makes a difference. Because if, you, if you're assuming sexuality, you should have that in your metapsychology. You should be honest with yourself theoretically. Okay, so I think the ego instincts gave us a metapsychology that's actually much more in tune with the way psychoanalysis is now in you know this decade. And because contemporary relational psychoanalytic accounts see the child as born into connectedness with others, not necessarily uniquely sexual, and they develop within that connectedness. And I think that was what Freud's pre-1910 position also gave us. That was Lecture 10 in The Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie peterson The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.